Brian McClanahan Show, episode 230. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Brian McClanahan. Like my Facebook page at Brian McClanahan. And of course, subscribe to the YouTube page where you can watch this podcast at Brian McClanahan. If you don't want to find all those all those uh, social media accounts, just go to my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. At the top of the page, you'll find all my social media buttons. While you're there, give me an email address and I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. You can also support The Brian McClanahan Show there by going to brianmcclanahan.com forward slash support. You can throw a few pennies or bucks or whatever you want to throw my way. Help keep these lights on if you're watching on YouTube. Help keep the podcast going. You also have on that page, uh, you can buy book plates. So if you want my autograph on your Brian McClanahan books, and of course there are several of those, you can buy those book plates. I'll autograph it, send it out to you. So go out and get those book plates too. It's a great way to get my autograph on your book without having to actually purchase the book and have me sign it and send it back and all that stuff. Just get a book plate, stick it on there, you're good to go. Also, you can support The Brian McClanahan Show by going to mcclanahanacademy.com. It is the best way to support the show, mcclanahanacademy.com. It's always free to enroll, and those that do enroll for free do get a free course, 10 Myths of American History. So after you enroll, you click that button, enroll, click on that, it's free to do so. You'll get an email with a link to that class, great stuff. Um, it's an hour-long course, 10 myths on American history, free of charge. And then, of course, you do have six other courses that you can purchase, and there's a little goodie after you get that free course. It comes the next day. A little goodie for that, um, and uh, you can use that to get those other courses that I have. So I've got a course on the war, on Reconstruction, Secession, the Declaration of Independence, also one on Alexander Hamilton, uh, a lot of great stuff. Um, so you're going to want to get those classes. Uh, they are just fantastic. I also got my, my uh, largest classes on American constitutions. It's 40 lectures. Great classes, great material, and of course that does support the Brian McClanahan Show. You can also support the show by going to learntruehistory.com. It's my affiliate link for Tom Woods Liberty Classroom. Enroll there. 20 plus classes. Great deal, but I do teach there along with Tom Woods, Brad Berzer, Jason Jewell, Kevin Goodsman, Bob Murphy, a lot of great instructors. So going out to learntruehistory.com and get your Liberty Classroom subscription as well. All right, all that said, let's talk about the material for the day. And this is a listener-generated episode. And it has to do with an article that was published in Reason Magazine, or at least Reason Online, reason.com. And the title is, it's time for Charlottesville to remove its Confederate monuments. They belong in the dustbin of history, but a state law stands in the way. So Reason, of course, is a libertarian, left libertarian website. They have published, uh, they did publish the uh, introduction written by Ron Paul to my uh, book, How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America. Um, so they, they, there's balance there at times, but they are more of a left libertarian website. And of course, this article is a bunch of junk, uh, but I'll, I'll get into that in a minute. But the, the email that I got states this, quote, someone in a cringeworthy article in Reason about Confederate monuments wrote the following. That principle called the Dillon Rule 
someone in response to this article. That principle called the Dillon Rule has been how the South Carolina and federal courts have generally judged cases because states are the lowest level that exists in the Constitution. But But the alternative, called the Cooley Doctrine, or Home Rule, has been adopted by many states on many issues, and some have, ex- have even explicitly ended the Dillon Rule. The alternative notion is that municipal local government is actually the original individual expression of self-governance, and as such, it is, it is a right that cannot be abridged by the state. Okay, so, the question comes down to this, um, and he's talking about something I've, I've gotten into, and of course, the mantra of this particular podcast is think locally, act locally. So, He's asking, in this particular case, should the cities and the localities be able to take down these Confederate monuments at their, at their own choosing? Should the state be able to block a local government from doing so? I mean, if you're going to think locally and act locally, then shouldn't the natural expression of American government be the local, the city, or the county, as opposed to the state? This is a very good question. And it's one that I think, um, if, if you don't understand American federalism, can run you into some intellectual pretzels, right? You can, you can get all contorted about this, because if I'm saying think locally, act locally, and then you still have an arbitrary power of the state saying, well, you can't do that, doesn't that blow up my entire premise that we should be out there trying to take care of our own backyard first? Well, in some ways, yes, and in some ways, no. So let's have a little little American history lesson here, and then we'll get into this Reason article, and we'll talk about um, how stupid it was. But first and foremost, when you look at the American Federal Republic, and I get into all this in my American Constitutions class, so you got to take that class, but here's a, here's a brief rundown on what I would say there. When you look at the American Federal Republic, if you go back to the colonial period, there certainly were incidents where the local was able to knock down an unconstitutional law by the colonial government. And in, in Virginia, this happened quite often. So in Virginia, maybe you would have a, a colonial court or then maybe a state court rule. But this happened more before the American War for Independence. So you'd have a colonial court make a decision, and then the local would just refuse to enforce it. So it was, type a, it was a type of local nullification. So they would look at that decision and say, oh, that's unconstitutional. We're not going to follow that decision. We're not going to do that here in, say, Richmond. We're just not going to follow it. And this happened quite a lot in Virginia. Uh, you had this uh, sort of a, a, a sovereignty within these little pockets of people within the colony of Virginia. And you had this also in places like Massachusetts, where you have Jefferson famously call these little areas ward republics. You had an overarching governing structure of Massachusetts, but the, the towns had a certain amount of autonomy. And every town had its own constitution. And just because you were ignorant of that town's constitution didn't mean that you didn't have to follow it and you were, when you were there. So there was certainly an overarching structure in Massachusetts, but then you had these local governments that had more power. All right, so we get to the American War for Independence, and now we have these states. And so essentially what you're arguing about when you say that the local is more important, you're essentially believing in James Wilson. You're believing in uh, Wilson when he said, look, the states are arbitrary creations. They didn't exist before 
the American War for Independence. What we had were people. We had English people here. We had, we had subjects of the king, so we had one people. We didn't have these arbitrary colonies and all these things. None of that stuff really existed. That was all just a bunch of hogwash. We just did it because you had to divide. I mean, this is Marshall's argument. You had to divide the people up somehow, so you had these little these states or you had colonies. But what we really had was one people creating the Declaration of Independence, and the states were arbitrary creations, and so uh, there isn't really anything such as states' rights. It doesn't really exist. There's always been one people. We've always had a national system. It's just that we had these colonies divided up. And so if you look at that particular argument, you say, okay, well, down to the local. I mean, we had these little local areas, and they could resist unconstitutional uh, decisions by colonial courts or colonial legislatures. Well, then these colonial legislatures really had no power. That was just arbitrary, you see. So you're buying the James Wilson argument. The problem with that particular argument is it's not true. So yes, you did have these situations in Virginia where you had the Lord of the Manor idea somewhat. I mean, if you look back at, at the Middle Ages, and, and Virginia was not feudal. None of the southern states were feudal. None of, New England wasn't feudal. None of these places were feudal. But the idea of the Lord of the Manor, the, the law stopped at the, manor's, uh, the, the b- border of the manor's property. Right, so the Lord of the Manor could determine the law of the manor. And so if he decided that that law was not going to be enforced on his manor, well, that's the way it worked. And you saw this a lot in, for example, Germany, uh, where you had uh, a very decentralized structure. You had the Holy Roman Empire, of course, as the overarching structure. And then you had all these independent kingdoms in Germany, and they didn't really follow what the Holy Roman Emperor wanted. There was always this bristle. That's why Germany was not unified until the 19th century. Because you had all these very powerful dukes and counts and other people in Germany, and they just didn't want any central control. So that was very much local-centered government. The Holy Roman Emperor might pass some type of of a decree, edict, uh, and they would just refuse to do it. You saw this a lot in the 1600s and the 1500s when you had the growth of Protestantism. So uh, you had a lot of Protestant pockets in Germany, even though the the official religion of the Holy Roman Empire was Catholicism. But you had these pockets that refused to follow the edict of the Holy Roman Emperor. It didn't matter who you were talking about, whether it was Charles V or on down the line. Uh, you had that um, all the way through the into the 19th century. But the problem was that that wasn't really the way that America was structured, at least... The, the federal structure was created by the British model, not the German model. And so the British model did have uh, independent areas that had control over the local concerns of the people. And that were, those were the colonies. So the, the, the colonies had legislatures, right? I mean, every colony had a legislature. The General Court in Massachusetts, the House of Burgesses in Virginia. Every colony had a legislature. And these were the official voice of the people of Virginia or the people of Massachusetts or the people of New York or take your pick of your of your uh, colonial government. So these colonial legislatures were there, and this is where people looked for tax policy. It's where they looked for currency decisions, for trade policy. This is where they looked. They didn't look to the local to do these things. They looked to that area. So those colonial legislatures are not arbitrary. They were there. They were the official legislatures of the peoples of those colonies. And so they are the building blocks 
of every sim single type of government in America, whether it's the state and local government, or I'm sorry, the, the local and county government, or whether it's the federal government. You see that the states created both. So the argument that somehow these state, these, uh, I'm sorry, these local governments have supremacy over the state is based on a lie. And that lie is simply this, that these local governments created the state. They didn't. It's the other way around. The state governments created the local governments. And so therefore they are sovereign. The state governments are sovereign. The state governments or the people of the state, because the state governments had to put uh, into effect a call for a convention. So the state legislatures led the call for a convention, right? I mean, all this had to be worked out that way. The state legislatures did not ratify the Constitution. The people in convention did. But regardless, it was done by state. So the states, as the Constitution clearly says in Article 7, between the states are ratifying the same, the states are the building blocks of the general government as well. So this is why if they are the creators... They create the local, and they also create the general. So you can't have an argument. When you look at this, he's calling it you know, the Dillon Rule um, or the Cooley Doctrine. The Dillon Rule is essentially federalism. I mean, that's, the Dillon Rule is ridiculous. This is federalism, what we're talking about here. The states create the, the, the city governments. The states can abolish these city governments. They can revoke their incorporation. Now, I know that... Um, and I've talked about this before when Birmingham was blocking up Confederate monuments. We're just going to do it because, and then this thing is going to eventually, you have, you have a, an Alabama judge that agreed with the city of Birmingham. So eventually this thing will make its way through the federal courts and we'll have to see what happens. Uh, but the fact is, the city of Birmingham said, well, the city has rights, the city has free speech, and we can do what we want. That's not necessarily true. Because the state created the city of Birmingham. And so the state can decide what the city, Bir city of Birmingham can and, can and cannot do. I mean, they could revoke the entire charter of the city of Birmingham and take it over if they wanted to. The state created these things. Not the other way around. The cities don't create themselves. People would naturally move there. But then they have to request incorporation by the state to say they can have a government, an official government. They can have some type of ad hoc government. They can meet, but that would have no, no authority. The state would still have to determine, say yes or no, to anything these areas wanted to do. They're not incorporated. The states create the counties. All of that is done by the state. And at, in the, on the same, uh, on the same uh, you know, trajectory there, the states create the general government. They can tell the general government what they can and cannot do. So when a state court decides and a st state legislature passes a law, that affects the state, it also affects the cities. In this particular case, then, the, the cities, like Charlottesville, cannot tear down these monuments when there's a state law preventing it. Uh, so th this, is, this is the issue. Um, and so let's get into it. So I would say, for, for, to answer the question, the states, as the creators of both the local government and the general government, have the ultimate sovereignty. I mean, it's, it's clear when you look at the Treaty of Paris, every state was recognized in its sovereign capacity. It's clear when you go to the Articles of Confederation, it's stated directly there. It's clear with the Tenth Amendment. It's clear that the Tenth Amendment was actually the most requested amendment 
when states were, pre- were presenting a, a possible Bill of Rights. It was usually number one on the proposed Bill of Rights. We would have a quote-unquote states' rights amendment because they wanted to ensure that the states still had all the power in this general government. It was central to the understanding of the general government. So let's get into this reason piece. It's very short. It's written by Billy Binion. Billy Binion. Don't know who Billy Binion is, but it's a terrible piece. Quote, Charlottesville's Confederate monuments are here to stay. A Virginia judge ruled this week, reigniting debate over whether statues of Generals Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson deserve a place in the public square. While some people obviously see Lee and Jackson as symbols of white supremacy, others see them as brilliant military tacticians or complex leaders in a difficult time, Judge Richard E. Moore of the Charlottesville Circuit Court says in a letter detailing his decision. In either event, the statues to them, under the undisputed facts of this case, are still monuments and memorials to them as veterans of the Civil War. The ruling comes nearly two years after the Unite the Right rally, where white supremacists carrying tiki torches and chanting Jews will not replace us march in Charlottesville to protest the removal of Lee's statue. The demonstrations culminated with the death of a counter-protester after a white nationalist rammed a car into a crowd of people. Moore's decision hinges on, the, on an early 20th century law that allows local governments to approve the construction of war memorials, but prohibits them from taking those same monuments down without state government's approval. The Charlottesville City Council acted in defense in defiance of this, a lawsuit alleges, when it voted in February 2017 to remove the statue of Lee situated in a public park that used to bear his name. Following the Unite the Right demonstrations, local officials also voted to remove Jackson's memorial, which the lawsuit was then amended to include. It is based on a flawed law, so the law doesn't make much difference, Bob Fenwick, a former Charlottesville City Council member, tells a local CBS affiliate. It was a public process. It was a lawful process, so that's our case. So here's where Billy Binion agrees. The law is flawed, and it should be amended, he says. If a local governing body may erect monuments without state approval, it follows naturally that the exact same official should be permitted to follow the exact same process processes for the removal. They know the needs of their constituents far better than the state officials, who are further removed from the daily goings-on in local communities. Well, I mean, certainly you can make a case. Yeah, I mean, you have this, and I've said this, you know, you can sweep around your back door. You know what's better for your local community than anyone else. This is true. I mean, he's he's saying something here that's on the surface true. But the problem is the state can determine what you can and cannot do in your city because the state, as Jefferson called it, was his country. So there still was, (laughs) there still is a sovereign over the local government. It doesn't matter if the if the process, we followed all the processes. We voted in the city council. We did all this. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the times these things were hijacked. But we did it. We, we, we followed all the procedures. We followed them to the letter of the law, and now we're going to tear things. Uh, the College Fix actually has a piece out today detailing all the places around the country that murals and other things are being taken down. Confederate monuments are the low-hanging fruit. I've said this several dozen times. And when they're gone, they're going to go after everything else. You know, whether it's Notre Dame where it has uh, it's removed murals of Christopher Columbus. I mean, uh, or you've got um, situations where George Washington is being covered up. Uh, I believe it was uh, Marquette. I was reading that they've uh, gone out and taken down a mural depicting the founder of the university because he was uh, portraying the blessings of Western civilization to the uh, to the uh, native tribes of the region. 
I mean, look, uh, in my next course from McClanahan Academy, I, I, um, which is coming out in probably July, it's going to be a great class. It's US, my first survey course, so it's going to be a U.S. history survey course. But I get into some of these things. Look, I'm surprised that some of these statues are still allowed to exist in, the, in Florida, places like Florida. There's a statue for Ponce de Leon in Florida, a guy who was a brutal slave owner. But yet there he is standing in, Pon- in Florida. No big deal. Uh, because why? He's not a Confederate. I mean, this is how stupid these people are. He's not a Confederate. But there he is in Florida. You've got statues to other people around the Southwest. Um, and these people were, were, were uh, and when it comes to brutality, you know, they, they were at the top of it. It's just silly how these things work out. But so you have a, you have a sovereign, the state, and the state can tell the local government what they can and cannot do. They've allowed the, the local governments the autonomy to put the statues up, but they've also said you can't take them down without our approval. So you can put anything up you want, but you can't take it down without our approval because we have oversight. It's not inconsistent. It's basically, I grant you the power to do this, but I don't grant you the power to do that. It's not inconsistent. Charlottesville's leaders have spoken, and they believe the monument should come down. Charlottesville leaders have spoken. Uh, doesn't necessarily mean all the people of Charlottesville agree, and they should. It's not lost on me that the vast majority of Confederate monument admirers weren't waving tiki torches in service of white nationalism and are genuine in their calls to preserve heritage. But as reasons Ron Bailey, a Charlottesville resident, notes, those concerns are misplaced when considering the historical context, much of which is unknown among many people born and bred in the South. He writes of his experience in 1963. Quote, my third grade Virginia history book referred to the Civil War as the war between the states and asserted that the conflict was chiefly over states' rights. Virginia generals Lee Jackson and Stewart were portrayed as honorable and heroic defenders of Southern rights. Well, that, that's true. It wasn't just Southern rights. It was federalism. I mean, look, at the surface, the war was to prevent secession. This is why Lincoln went to war in 1861, to prevent secession. He didn't go to war to do anything else. He went to war to prevent secession, and he was actually willing to allow Confederate states to come back in the Union with slavery if they would just put down their arms in 1865. He was, he was saying, I'll let you do that. We, you don't have to. The Emancipation Proclamation made this clear as well. In 1862, just say, put down your weapons, come back in the Union, and all is good. We just, I, won't, I won't issue this proclamation. You can keep your slaves. It, the war was about the Union. The Union. So... What was happening was these Southerners were defending the federalism of the founding generation. We're, we're allowed to leave. The founding generation said this over and over again in the North. And so Southerners are simply defending that. Right? We're allowed to leave. And then uh, Billy says, not much has changed. I grew up in Virginia a few decades later. And my teachers up through high school described the Civil War as a violent skirmish waged over federalism, which is true. It wasn't until after I graduated from the University of Virginia, where he was indoctrinated in 2013, that I learned the central role played by slavery. Uh, Look, no one's denying that slavery was an issue. An issue for what? Uh, Was it an issue in the, the war itself? No. Was it an issue in the hotly contested political troubles of the 1850s? Certainly. I've already done a whole podcast on this a couple of times where I talk about why slavery was important. But the fact is, the South seceded. They did so through conventions. 
popularly elected conventions, in crushing majorities, larger majorities than ratified the Constitution, larger majorities than supported the American War for Independence. They did so this way. And so the war was to prevent that act of the sovereign people of the states. That's what the war was about. Lincoln said as much. I'm going to war to preserve the Union. Well, that sounds pretty barbaric if you think about it. We're going to war to make sure you stay with us. We're going to war to make sure you can't leave. You can't divorce us. This is what we're going to war for. You can't leave. You can't do that. So that sounds barbaric. I mean, you kill a million men, and you have to have some moral reason now. There has to be something, because you know, this this is the idea, that wars have to have a moral justification. So the moral justification, well, we got to create something. So here, we're going to use this slavery issue. we got to come up with something. Because going to war to preserve the Union, nobody's going to look fondly upon that in even five years from now. It will look as a barbaric war of occupation. And we don't look too kindly on those wars throughout history. A barbaric war of occupation. To Southerners, that's exactly what it was. Even James McPherson, no neo-Confederate, says this. You know, Southerners are fighting against slavery, their own enslavement by the general government. Of course, you did have some Southerners who would say, yeah, we're fighting to ensure that we can keep our property. Just as you had some Northerners who were saying, yeah, we're fighting to free slaves. But most Northerners were fighting for the Union. This is, I mean, this is why you had mass desertions after the Emancipation Proclamation was issued. They weren't fighting to free slaves. And even near the end of the war, when they begrudgingly accepted that outcome, they were more than willing to say, you know what, uh, we're going to free slaves because that's the right thing to do, but, I mean, that's it. We're not going to even worry about anything else. Even Lincoln was that way. You're gonna, why don't we just, re, why don't we colonize them? Why don't we get rid of, of uh, African Americans? Why don't we do that? I mean, his, his entire premise, what are we going to, this is a question he asked, what are we going to do with the Negro? It's a question he asked, a direct quote, or what shall, I think it's what shall we do with the Negro? So uh, the question is, I mean, and, and his solution was, well, they can root hog or die. So the fact is, uh, slavery, and, and he went to University of Virginia, so, uh, I mean, look, the fact is, University of Virginia is not some type of, of right-wing indoctrination center. Uh, it is, it is the history departments there are run by Marxists or leftists, and uh, they have a view of the war at odds with the traditional view of the war that was established right after the war was over. Now, now again, I know there are people, well, Northerners would say it was about slavery, and Northerners, would, and even some Southerners would say it was about slavery. And look, I, I'm, not, I'm not questioning that. But the fact is, the war itself was not about slavery. The war itself was about union. We can talk about secession. Was secession about slavery? And so then, well, there's no secession, there's no war. That's not true. I mean, Lincoln could have made a choice. There didn't have to be a war. Then we could have been talking about, was Southern secession really about slavery? And is that morally justified? And we could talk about that. But the war itself is something entirely different. As a legal fight, he continues, he, he writes, the city council is an unlikely ally in removing Lee's monument. It would be wiser not to keep open the sores of war, but to follow the examples of those nations who endeavored to obliterate the marks of civil strife to commit to oblivion the feelings engendered, wrote Robert E. Lee in 1869 as he declined an invitation to place memorials for fallen soldiers. The state would do well to get out of the way and let Charlottesville and Lee himself commit the monuments to oblivion, along with all the ugly feelings that come along with them. 
Uh, certainly, Lee was interested in reconciliation, but that's one individual. Uh, the, across the South, people wanted to remember soldiers who had died. This was a horrible experience for them, and they wanted to ensure that those soldiers were remembered. And usually it was ladies' war memorial associations, later the United Daughters of the Confederacy, who were involved in putting these monuments up, raising pennies, pennies. Not, I mean, look, the smallest amount of currency they could get, they had a hard time raising funds for these monuments. And Booker T. Washington said, yeah, I think this is a good idea. We should put these monuments up because we should remember the men, the men of best character in the South. So Robert E. Lee was recognized as one of the men of best character in the South. Stonewall Jackson, a man of great character. The common Confederate soldier, the man that bled and died to defend his hearth and home against an invading army. I mean, this is, this is the justification used over and over and over again in private letters. Most of these monuments were put up to, to the common soldier, not to Lee or Davis or Jackson. Most are put up to the common soldier. There are some that honor uh, the, the conspicuous leaders of the Confederate cause. But most do not. Most of your courthouse square and monuments are to, are to a common soldier. Hey, we had all these guys die. We should remember them. Uh, because, I mean, this was, a, this was a traumatic experience for the people of the South. We should remember those people. I'm not saying that other people shouldn't be remembered. Or other people shouldn't, uh, they can have whatever feelings they want about it. But we should remember these people. Monuments are inanimate objects that have nothing. I mean, so they bring up bad feelings. Feelings, nothing but feelings. So they bring up bad feelings, so we can't have that thing out there. We can't have a painting that, that triggers me. What we're getting into is a bunch of whiny little babies. The people that want these things down are whiny little babies. And it's embarrassing, really. Um, we've gone from a generation of people, several generations of people, that weren't whiny little babies to an entire generation of pajama boys. And that's what we've got. A bunch of whiny little babies who have an indoctrinated view of America. America's awful. America's racist. America's slavery. America, you know, whatever you want to come up with. They're just awful. So we can't celebrate any of these things. As a matter of fact, we can't celebrate anything post-1975. Or I'm, so, I'm sorry, pre-1975. We can only celebrate things post-1975. This is the whole point of my Reconstruction class. I get into all this there. So, this article at Reason is stupid. Uh, the idea that somehow the local would trump the state is not based on any type of legal reality in America, going all the way back to the founding period. And so, there's my answer to that particular position. You've got a bunch of whiny people trying to circumvent and overrule the entire American uh, governmental process from the founding. And it's just ridiculous. So I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. I will see you next 